Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. Hi, Sal. Um, so let's make this podcast then about oral history in the classroom. Oh, yeah, great. Hi, Helen. Um, so some people, um, they've asked us to talk about oral history based on uh, what uh, what we were talking about in our last podcast and our ideas for um, for using oral history with students. Um, you know, do you think we can really do oral history with, with kids properly? Yeah, yeah, I think so, of course. I mean, we do every sort of history in schools, so why not? You know, the ideas we produce in written form aren't going to get published as uh, history monographs, but... Uh, you know, so our oral history won't get published as sound files and used as research, but we can still work in that way and learn loads about the past and crucially how we construct knowledge of the past. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think oral history is a, like a really interesting form of knowledge, isn't it? I mean, um, is it a source or is it an interpretation? So the person themselves is the source for the memory of the past, but it's also being filtered through so many layers of their own experience. Um, and also, you know, their memory is going to be affected by the questions um, that they're being asked as as well. I know it's it's gorgeously messy, isn't it? Um, you know, we all know that our strict ideas in school of what is a source and what is an interpretation break down quite quickly under scrutiny. Um, but, you know, we use them quite rightly to try to make things easier for kids. But then sometimes pretending life is simple isn't actually good education. And, and at some point we need to suggest that these are provisional ways of thinking, ways of thinking that make things useful and easy not ways of thinking that make them true yeah. oral history in the classroom is a really good accessible way of doing this okay that's uh, that's that's a really good rationale for doing it so I'm convinced um, so tell me more then tell me about what you do all right yeah because let's go back a little bit to what it is before we go to all that sort of complex stuff right. about sources etc so everybody will, will go oh my god um so what good oral history based examples do you know that can be used in class though Sal so let's go back to that first um, so, well, there are huge amounts of, of kind of shorter and longer extracts on the British Library website that I think um, is it would be a good place to start. Now, I remember you saying that Britain was quite late to start oral history collections, um, but there's been some making up for it since. You can absolutely get lost in there as a history teacher. There is tons of stuff. Um, there are collections of Holocaust survivors and at the Holocaust Exhibition and Learning Centre, there are lesson ideas for those too, which might be a really good way to, to begin with it. Um, there are uh, some good oral history testimonies via the Imperial War Museum website um, and back to the British Library. There are many memories of all sorts of 20th century lives. So, for example, about home life and work life and people's reactions to big, uh, big events as well. Big world events. 
Yeah, and I think there are these fantastic collections, Sal, from the 20th century. We were a bit late getting going and it's more sort of second half of the 20th century, really. But yeah, there is also some places you can get teaching ideas um, too. So there's a lovely set of people's recollections of the period 1949 to 19, sorry, 45 to 49 at historiana.com. And that's in their Changing Europe unit. And I've always found it hard to get real people into that join between the end of World War Two and the Cold War beginning. Mm. Somehow it all gets really very high politics and political geography and very um, abstract and kids either just switch off and find it really hard or get really engaged but in a but tended to I found with the sort of higher attaining pupils that did so I used some of these oral histories in a lesson for kids so that they could infer what it was like across the continent of Europe if you like it really got into the everyday hopes and fears and experiences that were then the backdrop to the high politics and I found that because that made it a lot more authentic to do that um that the kids really bought into it more and were, were just more interested. Mm. And I know they are just producing a new set on life after the big 1989 changes too, sort of, if you like, to, to bookend that period of the Cold War. All sorts of people they've got talking about life in the 1990s, which is something, of course, we don't even really teach that much, but probably ought to be. And they're, they're ready to go online. Um, I think they've been delayed by everything going on at the moment, but if anybody wanted them... If they get in touch with us, then I'm pretty sure I can source them and get a, get a, um, a electronic file to people with all those 1989 to 2000 uh, memories as well from across the continent. Well, that sounds great. But what about students um, kind of, you know, what you're talking about, the 1990s and automatically thinking that that's not history. That's my life. So <laughs> I could I could potentially share some memories of that. Probably not of life in Europe, you know, life in Portsmouth, maybe. Um, but what about students collecting their own oral histories? You know, because they, they may have they may know some people that are kind of living sources, if you like. Yeah, no, completely. Um, it's really fascinating, you know, how much knowledge they need to do this well. And um, I'll share an example of work uh, with a group to try to explain um, what I learned by doing it. Um, so a couple of years back, I set a group of year nines, a home learning project to to contact just an older person in their family and to ask what their memories were of the later um, 20th century because um, our year nine curriculum had topics from that period but I was a bit worried that it was a bit fragmented I mean to be frank it had been slightly planned because it was the things that we ought to do but they were about to give up history some of them so we ought to sort of stuff <laughs> it in but didn't want to duplicate with GCSE so it was all looking a bit messy and I thought right okay well maybe if we focus on a person's memories of those times it might stitch things together a bit so make them a bit more real and coherent and I think it did actually I think it made it more real um and I think it did actually make it more coherent. Um, but anyway, you know, stick 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 with me on that, and I'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because I've been I've been running a similar pro project with my year nines for a few years now, and um, so we used to teach a post World War Two unit called Were the Sixties Really Swinging? Um, and it Love began it. as a as a pro we used to be, being in the time of Austin Powers. It was actually Were the Sixties Really Swinging, baby, which <laughs> was 
like utterly cringeworthy for the year nines. We loved it. So and that began as a project to see what their older relatives remembered of things like the moon landings and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and it also the, the idea really was it to give them something to talk about when they were all together at Christmas. You know, you're kind of sitting around, you think, oh, you've got your mum going, oh, go and talk to your grandmother, talk to your grandmother. I think, well, this is this is the opportunity for you to do that. So um, it quite quickly became kind of bigger than that 60s unit, though, because um, where I was working in Wiltshire, there were quite a lot of evacuees. So we got stories about them, people's grandparents who'd been evacuated to the to the area and never left. Um, or had come back as adults um, and also quite a lot about how the local industry was geared towards the war effort because there were quite a lot of local factories and um, one of them was turned over to producing spitfires so it's really fascinating stuff that is really fascinating and I think that is exactly the way in first is to just come up with some general questions to get them just finding yeah. out what's in the background to sort of scope out the story and even some of that very simple stuff about where did you live what was your work unpaid as well as paid of course and what I did was I experimented a bit actually and I flung in a couple of um, questions at the end about their memories of bigger events in the period so because we were had this sort of sort of post-war slightly messy period I, I we actually flung in a question about what do you remember about the cold war um students really liked making that first contact contact and there was some really great sense of period stuff that came out as a result um, and and also what fascinated the kids straight away was the diversity of the experience when we had a chat in class about what people had found out so in one class we had everything from a from a school career disrupted as a german bomb destroyed a school to jewish refugees in york to um stuff about going to church to things about outside toilets and tin baths tin bath. uh, yeah the tin baths again and from seeing bananas to the fur for the first time which was just like as you can imagine the kids were like what and then also another lovely one was people um remembering gathering around the first televisions for the coronation and that was quite a, a lovely you know lovely little nuanced story and so I became very aware that this was this was bigger than history, if you know what I mean. It was actually putting generations in deeper contact with each other. And that's why, you know, I'm really struck by what you say about, yeah, you talk to your granny at Christmas, because often kids don't know what to say. But actually, it some of the kids, some of the more reflective kids were immediately fascinated by the way, once I poked them a bit, about how they had talked more deeply to people that they hadn't really talked to before. It was lovely. Yeah. And I think what I love um, about it is that when the accounts come back, you can often, you can hear through what they've written down or through what they've recorded how much their older relatives have enjoyed talking about it which I, I really like as well and I think you know part of that comes from me, my my mum's um, mum's you know she died she's been dead for about 15 years now but she used to work at Bletchley Park and I, I oh. just think oh I wish I'd just spent longer talking to you about that and then to be fair to me she she wasn't you know she didn't share matters about it because you know they were they still thought were bound by official secrets and that sort of thing so um but yeah you think oh that's a missed opportunity let's not they shouldn't miss yeah that. my grandfather was a prisoner of war captured at El Alamein and oh, didn't speak wow. about it yeah no no idea most of it went to the grave with him such a shame so this is basically just our frustrations about not laid <laughs> <laughs> out on the young yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I, I just it's great when they come back with their stories and I, I so the ones that I really remember um, was a story about a woman who'd married a German prisoner of war um, after the Second World War and the issues that they'd faced as a couple 
Um, and then there was a girl who brought in her, uh, she brought in a German Air Force hat that her granddad had picked up on the South, on a South Coast beach um, during the Second World War. I was like, this is amazing. Um, and then there was a boy who had a distant relative who'd been a sailor on the Titanic, who'd um, kind of been rowing, rowed, rowed away one of the um, lifeboats. Um, and then then the, the the one that really sticks was the girl who said she couldn't interview her great grandfather because he'd moved to America after he got out of Auschwitz. Which oh, God. Was like, oh, that was like a really humbling story to uncover after I taught them the Holocaust genome. I don't think about wow. that too much. So well, now it's 2020 and I'm working with a very different demographic. So it's quite different now, the stories that have started to come out. So firstly, there are far fewer stories related to World War Two. Um, and secondly, there are far more stories from world history. And um, so I get a lot of Somali civil war stories um, and things like India post partition. I think last year I had something on the, the civil war in Sri Lanka. So um, it just was, you know, the stuff that comes back is amazing. Um, and, you know, when you were when they were asking about um, memories of bigger events, how did that work out for the students? What did they bring back? Yeah, well, this is the bit that, to be honest, it was pretty fragmented and pretty hazy. And this goes to the point that I wanted to make about it's amazing how much knowledge they need. They can do that first sort of turfing up of fascinating stories that we all go, oh, wow. And particularly as history teachers, we just like nerd-tastic on. Um, but actually, I suddenly realised that, of course, the kids knew absolutely nothing about them. So they couldn't draw out any more info. Um but but they'd really, really enjoyed the first task. They'd really enjoyed going to find the general stuff. So what I did was was got the pupils to then say, OK, so so what do you want to know more about? And of course, all of them were really intrigued by something in the story. And this is the point where there was quite a lot of teacher legwork, because I have to say so far, this is one of those glorious uh, homework projects <laughs> where you, know, you, you just like sit back and watch it all happen. But at this point, I actually, actually had to step up and put some legwork in because they came to me saying, well, I'm really, really intrigued, for example, about what it was like to to live in Middlesbrough in the 1950s and I'm like oh my god okay and then and then somebody else said oh you know I do want to go and ask about uh, what happened in the early cold war that was slightly easier because it's a textbook page but what I did was was literally uh, dug out for example for the kid who wanted to look at their grand's life in 1950s London I found a YouTube clip of life in Britain in the 1950s it wasn't long it wasn't complicated but I threw it at the student and said right watch that and another student say wanted to know something about the early cold war so i literally photocopied a double page of a general intro to the cold war from a key stage three textbook check that at a student and it gave them some knowledge so that they could then go back and ask about the particular thing and say what do you remember about that specifically you know something mentioned in the youtube clip or something on the uh, textbook do you, do you get the idea Sal? yes you want to yeah yeah, I get it. So it's kind of like it's a two stage process. So uh, firstly, you get the kids talking, um, talking to someone and just asking general questions about the person and their background to kind of gain a sense of period where they, you know, where they were from, what they kind of remember. Um, and then they can write up or do a, a kind of oral reflection on what they've learned and think about what they are interested to know more about. Um, so and then you help them to learn a bit more about the interesting area before they go back to ask more questions to focus on one area in more depth. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this was the way I found they could then learn even more about the topic with the person. And they they absolutely loved it. They felt really in charge of their own learning. Um, they'd come up with the questions they wanted to ask. They'd learned some context and then they researched talking to the person in more depth. 
Oh, that's great. So they, they gained both complex knowledge of a topic and also they worked as a historian using source, using their source as, a, um, as evidence to answer a question. Exactly. And some of those contacts and connections just kept going, which was which was lovely and beyond just the history lesson, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. And um, we, we did something a little bit different um, because we what we try to do is to, to use this to kind of build research skills. Um, although maybe I'm going to change it now because I love the idea. So when I set this project now, what I what I get them to do is to continue their research using at least two books, plus as many alternative sources as they like. So basically websites. Um, so and that this builds on project work that we set in year seven and eight and um, to get them used to working with a reference book. So you think about all the things that I kind of take for granted about when I'm using books now so finding the right text understanding that you don't need to read the whole thing you can just kind of flick through it um, using the index how to how you avoid plagiarizing how you quote how you reference that sort of thing so what we're really hoping is that over a broad period of time this is going to help students with their NEAs at A level um, and also uh, more broadly a lot of our GCSE students undertake HPQ um, a lot of the A level students do EPQ and if they want to do a history topic or, or anything that in, I suppose involves good research like that um, then it's going to help them with that so and and as well as the research skills we also have ours present their work so we say it's a maximum of five slides um, so that it, you know it doesn't take really long time because some of them obviously absolutely go to town on it um, and we first of all before we set that, that homework we agree what a good one's going to look like before they make it so we we agree as a class what's a good presentation how, how will you know if you've done well um, and then they present they're, they're, they make their presentations in class um, and they're, then they're peer assessed on that. So what do yours do about kind of sharing back what they found? Yeah, I mean, I have done some formal presentations like that. And sometimes I've just done it as it depends on the class as ever. It depends on your specific learners, didn't it? The last lot I did it with, they were so into it, all of them, that we just had this mega group group discussion really because they they then sort of took their learning to the class in a more informal way so for example we had within the time period 1950 to 80 which is what we'd focused on we learned about diplomatic work which was of course something that would never normally come into the history curriculum um, <laughs> home life responses to the Cuban missile crisis um, the NHS farming going to university as a woman in the 1960s and we actually sort of they they they, they presented a very small amount they gave an oral introduction and and then they questioned each other, which right. actually worked quite well because it, as it brought out that real complexity of a period. And I do recall one child saying, which was really funny, about the person she'd interviewed. I asked her what she remembered about the Cuban Missile Crisis and she said nothing. So I gave her a history lesson. <laughs> I just thought that was completely, really lovely. But that, again, was, was really, really revealing for students because um, I think our lessons can sometimes imply that everyone in a time period was fixated on international events. But of course, in the 1960s, in a world without instant news, people weren't. Yeah. And, and of course, we're not even today. Life just goes on. Yeah. Um, and I think, but, you know, when you, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just going to say this kid was quite indignant that this woman who'd lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis couldn't remember it as much as she now knew about it. It was just gorgeous. You know? <laughs> well, I love the fact that she told her that she taught yeah. her about it. I mean, that's brilliant. I just, yeah. I, and I I think when we also forget that, that when our, our older 
relatives were you know were young they were far more self you know much more self-centered than 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 generally adults so it makes me think of this quote from um sarah jane blakemore so she's a neuroscientist studying adolescence and i heard her speak at um festival of education i think and she shared a quote from a letter um in the newspaper that she'd picked up which is so it's a girl's diary entry from the 16th of july 1969 and it's all about what she wore um, who she saw at youth group whether such and such a boy looked at her um you know who she fancied and then the very last line is just man landed on the moon so it's just like that's just kind of washed over her alongside you know I had my new yellow jacket on and um Tony looked at me in in that way yeah (laughs) but at the time that was more significant to her yeah love it love it love it love it so just to spell out then the process for this oral history project we begin with an interview yeah and then students can record that in notes or they could record it as a voice note or they could do it over skype like we do this podcast that would work too yeah okay and then crucially to discuss with students what they'd like to follow up on yeah and um you you talked about upskilling your students um uh, kind of to go away and talk to their grandparents or talk to their their older relative didn't you and i um I do something where they just look at the research in in books and and websites so then you kind of set I suppose the important thing is to set the expectations for research so this is how historians find things out Um, and even better you know if you can then work with them to formulate their own inquiry question because like that would be great wouldn't it if you could think about that yeah absolutely and once they've done that research then agreeing how they'll present it so how they'll um, have the chance to uh, to give their uh, the results of their research to the wider world yeah great and yeah I do think it's really important to give them that chance to present so I sacrifice three precious lessons to this project each year but I think it's really important to show that it's valuable you know this is the process of you doing history as opposed to just learning history um so yeah I think that's I think that's really worth doing so just to, to go back to your point earlier about the artificial division between sources and um and interpretations that we make I yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's very it's very complicated but it's not to undermine what we need to do for exams because you know they've got to they've got to play the exam games of sources and interpretations and and more importantly to to construct historical knowledge but but I found that even a mixed ability class could start to um, get the idea that these were just things ways we organize knowledge rather than truths um, by doing this oral history so so after the project I was a bit provocative and I asked um, whether the people they talked to were a source or an interpretation I just sort of you know <laughs> flung it out there and actually first thing to say is that they were really engaged in the discussion because they were quite invested because the people mattered to them you know as if I tried to have this is this a source or an interpretation over something printed in a book they like to look at me and go I really don't give a damn yeah. <laughs> um, and secondly um of course, some said they're a source. And then others looked at them and went, but no, they're an interpretation. And with some devil's advocate questioning for me, they realised that actually this is a matter of active debate and it really isn't clear cut. Um, Because on the one hand, they are the memory from the actual time. They are the the source, if you like. But then it's filtered through so many layers. And and, and because they're talking to a person, they they could be presenting themselves in a particular way or all that sort of stuff. And they were okay with that. They were okay to keep puzzling on it. And I think that was that was the important thing. We didn't come to any grand answers. But what I was trying to get at was really, really not that. I was actually trying to mess with their heads a bit and just gently go, hey, yeah, you know, this isn't simple. People really yeah. puzzle about this. It's it's There's no right answer. And I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
you know it's it's really important to point out to them that history is bigger than the exam specification and what you do for the exam specification doesn't necessarily reflect the absolute best of the discipline it's just yeah this is what it is is possible to um uh, examine from a distance you know yeah so anyway yeah, yeah <laughs> I can imagine that it would have been like really easy bearing in mind how easily you just engaged me um, really easy to engage students with topics um, and to br also bring in the idea of kind of diversity of responses by asking so what do you think so-and-so would think and can you ask x about uh, what they remember about such and such and such a thing so yeah, you bring up a really good point there. That was something I hadn't anticipated, and maybe you found the same, is that the next topics we did, which were sort of chronologically afterwards, I could occasionally fling in and say, oh, well, what do you think our um, person um, who was, you know, had the tin bath in Middlesbrough would have thought about that event? And OK, it's a sort of, it's it's a little bit flip, but actually what it did was make a really important point was that people would have different perspectives on things happening and if we're going to be really truly representative in our lessons about the past we've got to find ways to access source material that that that, that allows them to to realize that there were many different perspectives on things and therefore we've got to go beyond the written because otherwise really even modern times we're looking at issues of who had the power and who controls what was written down and who controls which writing was put in an archive and what survived and and this is a really great way to do that because the person that owned the tin bath in Middlesbrough's perspective on the Cuban Missile Crisis is probably not really in the archives. No you know? <laughs> no no probably not but I am um, so speaking of that though I, I came across this project last year um, it's been going it's it's an ongoing project called Unlocking Our Sound Heritage um, and they've got lottery funding to digitise sound recordings that are kept in archives. So a lot of that stuff is it is just day to day. You know, what are your memories of um, kind of sound recordings? But, you know, they're they're on tape and the experts reckon that we've got about 15 years left to digitise those sound recordings before the original recordings degrade beyond. Wow. Years. Um, and before the equipment needed to listen to it is out of date and irreplaceable, you know, because they're not making spare parts for tape recording. Oh I just I can't believe it. You know? <laughs> so um, anyway, there, there are these 10 regional centres set up um, around the country for volunteers to help with digitisation um, and also thinking about um, like how to make those recordings available for everybody to listen to. And I know that my friend um, Charlotte Milton, she teaches at Fairfield in Bristol. And last year when she finished her PGCE, she got involved in the Bristol Archives um, kind of centre and um, she really enjoyed like kind of working with those original recordings um, so it would be a really great volunteering opportunity for students that are kind of looking to beef up their UCAT if they're looking to study history post 18 or really for anybody that's interested in local history and heritage um, I really strongly recommend if you let's just google for unlocking our sound heritage and it's I found it on the British Library website but there are separate um, pages for each of the different regions so yeah have a look have a look Oh, that would make a superb project and yeah so to, to sum up then I think really using some oral history can provide a narrative thread through topics um, I think hopefully we've demonstrated it makes clear the past was lived and that history was mm. created by everyone um, I think it keeps complex what should be complex and I think it deepens understanding of the nature of evidence um, yeah. But also fulfills, I think, some of our wider educational responsibilities, which is to build intergenerational relationships and allowing students who don't always flourish to come to the fore and building a class culture that's that's discursive. So, yeah, I'm a fan and hugely grateful to the person who suggested we do a podcast on this because I yes. think it's 
I hope they realise they've really set us off on one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this one too. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sal. I'll thanks. see you again soon. Take yeah, care. Take care. Bye. Bye.